worshiping with family, can have challenges too at home, but I pray that you are singing right along, having fun with the kids, and that this is going to be some encouragement. I've been, like you guys, I've been pondering the effects of this whole world situation that we're in and um, how we're responding to it. And, I, and it led me to, um, well, led me to history, led me to scripture, that God's people have been pushed and they've been pulled and they've been gathered and they've been scattered, they've been affected all throughout history. You rewind back to Genesis and you see that Abraham was told by God, go to a land I will show you. And he uprooted his family and he left, not knowing where he was going. A few generations after that, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. His whole world was turned upside down and he was sold into slavery. It wasn't his choice. And after some years of Joseph being there and being faithful, he was put in charge, second in all command in all Egypt. Then God allowed a famine, no rain, no food, which prompted all of Joseph's family to go to Egypt where he was. And he said in Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. After a couple generations of living in Egypt, the family flourishes. There came a Pharaoh that did not remember Joseph. And so all of the Israelites are constricted into slave labor, and they stayed that way for over 400 years. Then they were let out of Egypt. Moses, I mean, the whole 10 plague thing, you remember that story. They got out with miracle upon miracle, power upon power, God showing himself to be faithful to deliver them. And they get out into the wilderness, and they begin to change their tune. A couple million people out there in the middle of nowhere, and they begin to worry. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to get anywhere? God gives them food every single day. They went out and gathered as much as they needed for one day. On the, on the seventh day, they gathered for two. Or the, the sixth day, they gathered for two days to cover the seventh day. They didn't hoard. You know, they didn't go clearing out the, the bread aisle. They just gathered for one day. That was what they were supposed to do. And so... But they still got worried. They still started grumbling, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to normal. They wanted to go back to the whips of the slave drivers. They wanted to go back to their homes instead of tents. They wanted what they could predict. Anybody? Anybody? God kept telling them to listen and to trust and to follow and they'd be led to a land flowing with all the milk and honey they could want. And it was supposed to take about three months, but you know, it ended up being 40 years because of their disobedience and their lack of trust. Fast forward about 1,500 years to the time of Christ. Jesus' followers follow him. to the. He, he goes to the cross. He's buried in a tomb. He raises to life on the third day. They all see him. The book of Acts begins, the church is established, thousands of people come to know Christ, and they just keep adding daily those who are being saved. And you get into about Acts chapter 6, and then there's a guy named Stephen who begins to argue with some of the Jewish leaders. He gets into a heated debate with these guys, and chapter 7 of Acts is the entire history lesson of the Israelite people. At the end, Stephen gives them an indictment and basically condemns them for killing the Christ. And they pick up rocks, and they stone him to death. And what happens next changes everything. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. If you've got that, you can read along. Whoever you got with you, let's just read the first four verses. Saul was there giving approval to his death, that is Stephen's death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles. All all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged them off, men and women, and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Here's what I'm thinking. God knew it was time to move out. God knew it was time for the church in Jerusalem, growing as it was, they were getting comfortable, and they needed to move. And so God allowed some very unpleasant, very uncomfortable, painful circumstances to get them out and scattered. And what did they do? It says they preached the good news, they proclaimed the good news wherever they went. And I think that was just an immediate reaction because that's what they were doing before. They preached the good news wherever they went because that's what they were already doing. That was their immediate reflex. What about us? What's our immediate reflex when things get hard and we don't know what's coming next and people are hurting? Crisis and hardship bring about our character. It displays what we're made of pretty fast. A whole lot more than comfort and safety. I've been wrestling with this for a while now. We are not just a church scattered right now, we are increasingly a church confined to our own homes. And so what does is, what is proclaiming the good news of Jesus look like in your house? If you've got kids, little or old, if you've got um, grandkids on the phone, what does it look like to proclaim Jesus in your house if you're not leaving? So we've been going through this sermon series. I'll just leave that question right there for you. We've been going through the sermon series on the last week of Jesus' life, and we've come to Thursday. Now, you might think, I thought last week was Tuesday. Well, it was, but Wednesday, well, if anything happened Wednesday, we're not really told a whole lot about it, except that Jesus kept teaching the people, and the chief priest kept making plans to kill him. So we were skipping over Wednesday, and we're going to Thursday. Two big events and some words of Jesus that I think we need to hear. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, And the Last Supper are two of the main events that happen on Thursday. You might remember when Jesus said, go make arrangements for us to to eat the Passover. There was was a a guy carrying a jar of water. The the disciples were supposed to meet him, follow him to the house. The guy is supposed to say, oh yeah, I got an upper room all ready to go for for you and your disciples to eat the Passover. And when they get up there, they start making preparations. It was just before the Passover feast. And John 13 is where I'm at. Jesus knew his his time was come, has come, and he was going to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Here's the context. The evening meal, verse 2, was being served. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew 
that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, what's a natural reaction Jesus has to having all this power? He takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. I don't know what happens to you when you think you got some authority. You can tell people what to do and where to go. Is your first reaction to grab a towel, to grab a broom, to grab something that you can go do something nobody else wants to do? Nobody else wanted to wash feet. There was no servant in the house. When they got there, they were filthy. You know what it's like to walk on dirt roads with sandals on or flip-flops or whatever, and there's animals everywhere, and you're stepping in who knows what? They get up there, and there's nobody to wash the feet. And so it's kind of gross. It's kind of stinking in there. And Jesus, he takes the position of a servant. Understand, who are these guys? He washed the feet of the one who was going to betray him. He washed the feet of the one who would deny him. Three times. He washed the feet of the one who, after the resurrection, doubted that the others even saw him. He washed the feet of all those who would run away and leave him alone when the mob came with swords and clubs. So he came to Peter. Jesus comes to Peter and he gets down right in front of Peter and he goes, give me your foot, Peter. Peter draws up his feet right underneath his robe. And he's like, you're not washing my feet, Jesus. Nope, not going to do that. And Jesus says something very powerful. He said, look, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You have no share in me if I don't wash you. And so Peter, in typical fashion, goes all, you know, all completely overboard. Well, just give me a bath then, Jesus. If that's what you want to do, just take care of it all. And Jesus is like, you know what? You know, you're already clean. You just need your foot washed here a minute. Get over yourself, Peter, and let me do something for you. If I know a lot of us, I think that we would rather be, if we had to choose, we would rather be the one washing and not the one being washed. You know, once you get done being a kid and having your mom give you a bath, most of us would rather be the one in control. Even if it's something that nobody else wants to do, we'd rather do that. But where are you in response to this crisis? Somebody needs to do something for you. You need somebody to go get groceries for you because you can't get out. Or you're not supposed to be out. Somebody needs to pick up your medication. How hard is it for you to pick up the phone and call somebody say, I really need a favor. Can you get out and get this for me? Sometimes it's getting rid of your pride to be able to do something for somebody else, but also sometimes it's getting rid of your pride to let somebody do something for you. In this time, we have to be ready and willing to have both done. And Jesus said, you know what just happened here? He got done. He, walked, he got his outer clothing back on. He took his place at the table. And he goes, you, you understand what I've done for you. You get this? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. 
I tell you the truth, no servant's greater than its master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And he finished this part with this. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. See, the blessing is not in the knowing. I got all kinds of knowledge in my head. But I don't, I'm, the blessing is in the following, in the obedience, and in the doing. You'll be blessed if you do them. So in the midst of, if you're in, some, some of you have lost your hours. Some of you have been cut back. Some of you have completely been laid off. Some of you are in the house and you're not going anywhere. In the midst of all of this, in the downturn, in the slow, how will we wash feet? What will you do? to take notice of somebody's needs? What will you do to have somebody notice your needs and do something about it? Jesus said some things to his disciples that I think we need to hear in the midst of John 14, 15, and 16. And just very quickly, I think we need to hear a few things from Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 1, it just says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This isn't just about heaven. This isn't just about in the hereafter in a funeral. This is now. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All through verse, uh, chapter 14, there's all kinds of unity stuff going on in here. That Jesus is one with the Father. That we are one in Christ. That Christ is in us. Verse 17, the Spirit is in us and lives in us. And there's an understood unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but there's also a unity between them and us as believers, as the Spirit indwells us. So in light of that complete connection, other things in this chapter make more sense. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, if you're one with me, if you're in me, you're, you'll obey my commands. You'll do what I say. And there's other if statements, if and if then statements, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor, the teacher. And once all that is realized, we look at chapter 14, verse 27, and it's almost a repeat of chapter 14, verse 1. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you like the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So there's verse 1 and there's verse 27. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And you're like, yeah, I'd, I'd love that right now. I would, I would love not to be afraid right now. But you can't make yourself not be afraid. You have to dwell within the Father. You have to have him dwelling within you. There needs to be some complete unity going on between you and Jesus. In order for that to happen, you cannot will yourself to calm down. And that takes some abiding. That takes some staying put, as Jesus put it in chapter 15. You've got to stay put in me. You've got to abide. You've got to stick around. You have to stay connected. Like a branch on a vine, like a cluster of grapes on a branch, you have to be connected to the root in order to flourish. Otherwise, you're going to dry up and break off and be burned. There's got to be connection. He said, apart from me, we can't do a thing. Apart from him, apart from Jesus, we can't do anything of any value. And that's especially true right now. And then chapter, thir- chapter 16, verse 33, 
a familiar one. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We need to keep reminding ourselves of that. So there's the washing of the feet. There's some words of Jesus we need to hear. And then, then there's the Passover meal. Then there's the, the, what they were actually doing there. And there's a whole lot of stuff we could get into. But, um, but what I want to focus on is communion. I don't know if you got the message. I don't know if you made preparation. I hope you have something right there in front of you as a family to take communion together. And if you've got to run into the kitchen and grab a loaf of bread or, you know, grab some Kool-Aid out of the, of the refrigerator, I don't care what you've got to do. Just take a, couple, take a minute, go grab something if you don't have it. I don't care if it's pizza and a Dr. Pepper. We're going to have communion together, and we're going to do it in your home. There's something really cool, even if you're by yourself, to have the Lord's Supper, knowing that there's other people around that are doing the same thing with you. I mean, we can sit in this room, and I have, I have an awareness a lot of times when I'm taking communion that my sister in Finley, Ohio is in church taking communion too. My in-laws in Carthage are taking communion about the same time I am, and we're communing together, proclaiming the body and blood of the Lord in different places, different time zones, different parts of the world. Some dear friends just flew over to Australia beat the travel ban, and they're in 14-day quarantine, beginning their work as church planters. And we'll commune with them. And so in Luke 22, Jesus, in verse 19, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead, whatever you've got, just take off that whatever piece, share it with each other, and let's take the bread. the body of Christ broken for you. And in the same way, verse 20, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so whatever you've got, pour a little bit, however much you want, and realize the blood of Christ was shed for you to cover your sin, to make atonement where we couldn't make it so that we could be standing justified before God, forgiven. Now, I can't really be sure of the exact timeline that a lot of these things happen in that upper room but what Luke decides to write next really struck me about right after the bread was shared, right after the cup was given, 
And he said, Jesus said, this is all about me. I'm going to give my body and my blood for this new arrangement between God and people. He talked about who was going to betray him. And in verse 24, he said, an argument came up among them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you put yourself in Jesus' spot right now? I mean, you've arranged this whole thing. And you're taking this, this, this feast and you're making it something really new, something very amazing and, and meaningful. Your time is short. You only have hours before you know your life is, is ending. You're going to lose your life in a horribly violent, painful way on a Roman cross. And you humbled yourself to the point of washing your disciples' feet and saying, hey guys, you know what? You ought to be doing this too. You went through the supper, you, you narrated the whole thing, and this new covenant is coming, and it's in, it, it's in the blood of Christ. And all of a sudden, the guys who you've poured yourself into for the last three years, you washed all their dirty, smelly feet, and they're arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest. You're about to give them the keys to the kingdom because you're leaving. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little scared. I'd be a little nervous about handing this over. But Jesus wasn't rattled. He just gave him another lesson. Look, I'm a servant, he said. You do as I do. You follow me. Do this. Don't argue amongst yourselves. And then he warned them. And Luke's the only one who tells us this. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Look, we've got an enemy out there, and it's not the coronavirus. It's not the lady in the cart in front of you trying to get all the bread and eggs before you get there. The enemy is not the people in your own house who are driving you up the wall right now. The enemy is the one trying to separate us not necessarily geographically, but relationally. He wants to separate and crush us. He wants to break us apart. We've just taken the bread and the cup to remind us of the selfless love of our Lord and Savior. Don't try to be first when you get done with this broadcast, when you get done shutting off your device. Don't start arguing about who's going to do what. Just help each other. Pick up the towel pick up whatever needs to be done, and serve. And what I want to finish with is, is what's going to make this stick. Because love is what convinces people that this is all for real. And in the last part of John, John's um, account of this, in chapter 17, Jesus prays what's called a high priestly prayer. Unity with one another within Christ should produce results that the world should see in response to, a response of awe, even fear, that God's really doing something supernatural in these people, and people want to know why that is. This is beyond us being good citizens. This is unity and love for one another and the world that makes us different and makes an unbelieving world sit up and take notice. 
It lends legitimacy to the gospel and it helps people know there is something else about us. And we're not just pretending and we're not just playing church. Jesus prays, chapter 17, verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? So the world may know that he was sent, that Jesus is for real. It all depends on unity. Jesus says, they'll know that you're my followers by the way you love each other. So this week, churches all over Pittsburgh are working together to purchase, assemble, and deliver breakfasts and lunches to any kid 0 to 18 years of age. There's 20 different stops in the city. Countryside's got three of them. And we're making about 100 for 100 kids a day for the next week. Josie has that all lined out. She's got her team ready. If you want to contribute to that financially, you certainly can. This week, people will call each other. We had a few elders even this afternoon calling people, praying for them, seeing if they needed anything. That needs to continue for all of us to check up on each other, to visit the lonely through windows or through computer screens or phones. Think of that widow, think of that widower, someone who's at risk, shouldn't be out. Check on that neighbor. Offer that single mom with the kids at home that she still has to go to work. This week, people will see their hours cut, even be laid off their jobs. While others are busier than ever, they've taken care of people's needs. They may be the first responders. They may be in the health department. They may be those in education. They may be at the hospital. They may be truckers who are bringing in everything that you want to go get, but they just have to keep bringing it in. They have to keep trucking it in. It wasn't our choice. None of this, this was your choice. But the church has left the building. Don't sit around waiting to come back to church. Go be it to your world. Because God is worthy of our praise. He is great. And we don't just say that kind of thing. And we don't just sing it. We act it out. And as we finish up this time here, um, we are going to sing it. We're going to sing about the greatness of God. And I pray that you're singing at home. You know, grab, grab the kids, sing along, and let's, let's pray together, and let's be the church. God, thank you so much for a way to share the gospel, for a way to share your word. And I just ask that as... Um, People of all kinds go around our city doing good that you would be honored. You would be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.